Hey everyone, happy Memorial Day. And just a quick note before we head into today's episode of the Memory Distillery, you may notice, uh, I don't know how else to put this, there's a disturbing sort of sound anomaly within the podcast this week. At one point, it's going to sound like Anthony is attempting to do like a Sean Connery impression. Now, we address what went wrong within the episode, but the more I thought about it, I really thought you all needed some sort of advanced notice uh, because, frankly, it's a little disturbing. Uh, anyway, now, on to the show. You're storing memories to lose them again. You'll forget everything when this whole thing Everybody. Welcome to the Memory Distillery. I'm Anthony Verneri. And I'm John Deck. And each week we will malt, mash, ferment, and distill our way through the spirits of our past in the form of long-loved movies. And on today's episode, do you have your multi-pass? Are you super green? Because we're going to discuss The Fifth Element from 1997 by Luc Besson. Uh, John, I've been looking forward to doing this since we started talking about doing this show. This is like one of the the more loved movies that we sort of added to our list early on. I've never heard of it. Is it good? It's so, so good. Um, it's, it's a little surprising that you haven't heard of it, considering that um, it's the movie that it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I blanked for a second. We're talking about the fifth element, right? Right. No, not the yeah. sixth element. The... Yeah, the sixth element was horrible. Right. No, we're talking about the fifth element, the really good movie. Yeah, not the documentary about uh, ocean plants. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, fifth element. Like, I agree. I feel like up to this point, some of the movies we were picking were purposefully ones that were a little vague to us, a little at the edges of our memory. Just, you know, trying to remember, did, did we like this? What was it about this? I just have a good feeling, but I can't remember it. Whereas I think you and I both probably have a pretty strong sense of the fifth element and it has been a while since i've watched it it feels inexcusable because it's the kind of movie i would just periodically throw on every once in a while so it really has been quite a while but i i feel like i have a pretty solid grasp on what our, we're getting ourselves into yeah i mean it's it's probably been even like eight or nine years for me since i've watched it not you know not because i haven't wanted to watch it it's just i haven't maybe had opportunity or or what have you uh, but I mean, I remember this being a great Bruce Willis flick. What probably one of my favorite Bruce Willis movies. Uh, it kind of, from what I remember of it, and I remember a lot. It's very much uh, sort of diehard in space in terms of like the action and and all that. Um, also, my first introduction to Mia Jovovich. Uh, or, I you know, it's probably been twenty years. I still don't even know if I'm saying that name right. I'm definitely going to let you be the one who's in charge of pronouncing her name um i'm going to go with one of the really difficult names like gary oldman sure. um, who again i mean as far as fantastic actors go he's at that top and this is yet another version of himself that you never see anywhere else and i mean i think this with the fifth element i didn't know it when it first came out but over time realizing it as a part of luc Besson's uh oeuvre yeah, That's a word, right. It, it is now. I think it, it's a, it's a word that you said. Yeah, I think it's French for egg, and in France they like movies are considered eggs. Oh, um, but today I learned. But Luke, um, even from like Leon the Professional, like just his storytelling and the ability to combine action with intriguing characters, and um, I know uh, there was that movie fairly recently, the uh, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, that. I don't think critically it did that well, but yet again, it just demonstrated his his storytelling and ability to take big ideas and big images and big fun, you know, in that sci-fi way that reminded me just a tiny bit of the spirit of the fifth element. Um, but yeah, as far as the movie itself goes, though, I really, um, a lot of it was a revelation at the time. It felt very like, 
are they trying to imitate something like Star Wars? Like, what is the deal here? And and of course, I remember the reviewers at the time, that's like all they could compare it to because they weren't like sci-fi fans or, you know, they didn't have much to go off of. Right, and, right. And so it's like, well, no, it's not a good Star Wars. It's a good The Fifth Element. You know, it's right. its its own thing. And, and uh, yeah, I remember just, I love it, the, the practical effects and creatures, the, the, uh, just the whole settings and the, the characters, the, the, the whole fun experience of going through it all. Um, yeah. So it's, it's definitely in that, that blue opera singer chick, uh, just mesmerizing. So that's fun. Well, and not, not only that, I mean, you know, you talked about the, the practical effects and the creatures and stuff like that. And this is very obviously set in a future, you know, well beyond where we live now or when we live now, but there's so much about this movie that's so relatable to life today. Like, it's not like they, they make this some sort of utopia, far off future utopia society or anything like that. Like the, the things that uh, Bruce Willis's character goes through, uh, like getting fired and getting into you know car accidents and police chases and whatever, like, the, and maybe not the police chases so much, but a lot of the stuff that you, see him experience you can sort of relate to and i i've always remembered enjoying that part of it too yeah it'll be interesting to look at it through that lens considering some of the other movies we've we've looked at or talked about and you know just thinking about their uh, you know comparing what life was like back then and you know looking at the differences and here we have a another uh a, a future not just well kind of dystopian but kind of utopian kind of a blend um, you know, we had Waterworld, and, and now we're going to take a look at the fifth element and uh, see what happens when you add in four other elements. Yeah. So maybe we should go and do that now. Uh, you want to go jump in and watch this movie? Yeah, I think it's on Netflix. I say we uh, just jump on in and go for it. Cool. So we're going to take a break here. If you guys want to watch along with us, uh, go ahead and do so. And when we come back, we'll see if it holds up to what we remember. Uh, we'll be right back. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We just got done watching. Uh, John, let's get down to it, shall we? Oh, yeah. We got The Fifth Element. Just watched that on Netflix and uh, quite an experience. Now, before we even get into the movie itself, I have to ask you a quick question, Anthony. Are you very familiar yourself with French cinema in general? Uh, very familiar, no. Somewhat familiar, kind of. Well, to me, watching this, it struck me that, I mean, of course, Luc Besson made this and there's that French tie, but this really felt to me more now than ever before, like an installment of French cinema, something that was kind of put out there in the sense of, we don't care whether you understand it or not, we're innovating, we're creating a vision, and it's art, it's not necessarily meant to just entertain you, the masses, the ignorant masses, it's meant to be something, you know, beautiful and strange and new. Um, and so I say, instead of treating this just like a, a movie where we go through and talk about what happened, and the plot and stuff, I say we keep it a little more freeform in the spirit that perhaps Luke Besson meant, uh, and that it's more experimental and open uh, with, with what we, you know, how we interpret it and what we get from it. How does that sound? Even before you jump in, from there, I did want to talk about the title sequence. Oh, okay. uh, and the, the and the title card because we've like th this is only the seventh movie that we've officially done, and we we keep talking about how poorly done these title cards are, like Silence of the Lambs and Jumanji. This, yeah. even for all of its animation, was way better than most of the films that we've watched. That's all I wanted to say on the title card. You may continue. Yeah, I I don't disagree with that. Um... In fact, I think maybe we should make this entire podcast about discussing the title card. <laughs> I'm raising one of my eyebrows and I'm smoking a cigarette on the end of one of those sticks. I don't know what they are and I don't care because I'm, I'm so far above it. I don't even need to know what it's called. Um, so yeah, so the fifth element. We have a movie to contemplate, but to really understand what this movie is, I think we should talk for a minute about what 
is the fifth element what what is it what is like literally like what is the fifth element so the fifth element at least in the context of this film uh, and we all know the four basic elements of kind of life in the universe you have the water fire vegetables, and meat air. sugar yeah the the juice. food pyramid which is where we started out in this movie that's that's where this all comes from oh i got it backwards no you're right it's the <laughs> the fire earth air and yeah that, that's the right thing. so fire earth water air uh are the four main elements uh for this movie there is a fifth element a a supreme uh weapon or being that uh, brings those four elements together and turns them into uh, a a force of good to stop evil. The fifth element, like you said, it's very much, if you think of it in a straightforward way in terms of how we look at it in this movie, you know, it's that idea of here are the four basic elements and there's something beyond that, something greater than something that is when, you know, combined with the other four is going to be like the salvation of it's humankind. Yeah. Um, and so Captain Planet shows up and he looks different than <laughs> I remember. Um, but like what we what we get is this being um, who is supposed to be the, the, the fifth element, or at least that's kind of how it's presented as though the character of Lilu is the fifth element. Um, but to go beyond that, I feel like within the movie, it's defined that that the fifth element is not her, like not just that she exists and she is the fifth element because something is required to trigger the existence of the fifth element. So it's not just simply her being alive. Um, And so whether it's something as, you know, open-ended as love or, you know, compassion or, you know, something like that. There's there's definitely the fifth element here is not just a being or a fighter or the good force that shoots light beams in the air to destroy the bad force. It's something a little deeper, more complex, I believe. Yeah, I agree with that. And actually, I, I we're, we're getting to sort of the end of the film with this, but I... Like, Start I wrote at down the here. end, work our way back to the beginning. It's what we sure. always do. I'm down with that. Uh, I, I wrote down here, love was the real magic all along. Uh, because like the the thing didn't happen until Corbin uh, said I love you. Yeah. Cor- Corbin Dallas had to tell Lilu that he loved her before she would shoot a huge beam of light out of her mouth and destroy the the darkness. Which is your typical romantic comedy trope with the big beam of light out of the mouth, um, and so. If I had a dollar for every time I saw it. Speaking of dollars, I think, and this all ties together, believe it or not, that the fifth element, as described in this movie, is, whether it's conscious or not, it's definitely some sort of a call to the the aether, or ether. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that. What it really comes down to is, at least like in the in sort of the D&D sense of the word, I mean, you're talking about there's there's different planes of existence and one of them happens to be the ethereal plane which is the ether and so that that force that that ether that you're talking about is is the the best way to describe it would be a supernatural force not of this world and that is what's inside of lilu throughout the entire movie it's completely undefined so it's not as though your answer to you know what is this thing that Leland did is any better or worse than any other answer so with that i want to kind of use that as a framework to keep in mind as we discuss the movie at least for those who are listening to contemplate as well um and we can kind of go back and forth on it but i'm basically supposing that that this is not about humanity and this is not about love necessarily. This is about abstract concepts that are bigger than all of us and that there's some mysterious, like the equivalent of dark matter or dark energy, something that is kind of assumed to be true and and really vital and important, but kind of a noble at the same time. And that there's 
something being represented within the being, within the concept of who Lilu is, that is supposed to be completely unknowable and mysterious, and it just so happens to be funneled through this mechanism of human love. That's interesting. I had thought about it that deeply, but it that that's actually a great a great lens to view this through, I think. There's so many times that I think our human brains that we don't do things because we don't think we can. And it's like once we've expanded the ideas of what we think is possible and we try them, then, you know, once it's held out there and we see a, a shiny image of it, we go, oh, maybe we could actually try that for real. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the life imitating art aspect of it is definitely like that's why we at least I think in large part why we have things like cell phones and personal computers and uh, peanuts, 3d printing. Well, peanuts. Sure. Why not? Um, I don't think that that may necessarily be true, but we'll go with it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) A certain philosophical aspect to that, like as a species, can we advance without art and, and without the, the sort of inspiration that comes from, fantasy and uh make believe and fiction and storytelling yeah i mean i think every time an art program is cut from school there's someone out there crying because they understand that this is not just about doing something that's pretty or having a happy feeling inside of you that there's a fundamental part of who we are as human beings and I mean, whether you're someone who thinks that there's some sort of spiritual being who created us and we emulate that by creating in return, or if it's just the nature of what we've developed and grown as, as we've evolved and and taken hold of what we're capable of, um, no matter where you think it's coming from, the fact that creativity and and artistic endeavors, things like that are, are woven into the very construct of who we are as far back as we're able to go from, you know, verbal storytelling to where it's been written or painted or scratched or it's always been a priority. And so um, just having a movie that, you know, at, you know, somewhere in the core of it, it's asking these questions and it's just done in such a, a crazy, amazing backdrop of just stupidness, like, but like in a, a joyful, wonderful sci-fi way that, you know, it's almost like the plot in quotation marks totally incidental the bad guys and good guys totally incidental the world governments worthless the you know the everything going on is just like a watercolor painting of sci-fi extrapolation of science versus art and all these things and and it's like i never really thought of it i just thought of it before it's kind of oh this is kind of a funny sci-fi movie and now i can't help but kind of be sucked into just having a certain amount of awe and enjoying this on a level that makes me think you know was i high when i was watching this because i don't (laughs) i don't think i was but it certainly seems that way right now going back to lilu for a second so um when we when we first meet her she's she's done being rebuilt and and all that like she has that moment where she's sort of bugging out and not really she's super disoriented not sure what to do and she just dives through the wall uh, which I was like, holy shit. Uh, even this, this, and I've probably watched this movie 20 times. Uh, even seeing it again, I was like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> uh, and that, that same doctor, he's just like, she's perfect. Uh, but her whole escape scene was really cool. And then like the crash landing into Corbin's taxi and that whole car chase scene, I, I felt like that entire sequence set the tone for the entire rest of the film from a sort of a plot and a pacing standpoint. Yeah, um, and to to merge the over-idealized artistic aspect of everything that you know I started rambling about in the beginning with the actual plot and context of the movie itself, I think that in and of itself, again, is a great example of what's happening in this movie. It's like chaos. It's... It's this very specific focused event where her body is created and recreated and that creation lends itself almost immediately to entropy in every possible way. And so mm-hmm. that that excitement, that level of, you know, what's happening, you see like Corbin Dallas, he's like, 
I don't know if you'd say he, I mean, he's obviously more or less the protagonist here, but it's not like we're seeing through his eyes like you normally do a protagonist. But at the same time, you know, he is just witness and wrapped up in this movement of chaos and it just literally drops in his lap, as he says, you know, later. Um, and that his entire experience here, you know, is starts off in this miserable place where so much of his life has just left him like this empty shell of nothingness. And the insertion of art and chaos and life and vibrancy just turns everything on its head and takes it in a new direction that gives it more meaning. Yeah, and I, I think that that, especially that emptiness part, um, they they do a good job, I think, of, of sort of playing to his kind of past military experience because you find a lot of guys who they they leave the military and they end up in kind of dead end jobs and they end up divorced and, you know, whatever. And, and just life, life, life for a lot of vets is not great folks at home or in your <laughs> car or just listening to this show for a lot of vets. Uh, thankfully I'm, I'm the exception of that. I have a pretty good life, but for a lot of vets, um, they don't, they don't adjust well to life outside of the military. So, for for all of this stuff, all of this chaos to kind of fall into his lap all at once, um, you and and you see it almost immediately as soon as she crashes through the the roof of his cab. Like he goes into this mode of like, all right, assess the situation, start controlling what you can. Uh, all right, now we got to go. We got to you know get away from the cops, or you know I have to make split second decisions and. We have to get to safety. Like that's all sort of it's part and parcel to a part of his character that we don't really get to see in insofar as like his his past prior to the events of this movie. Yeah, we see all the the evidence. We see the echoes of what we know he must have been, not just in the way he drives or the way he handles firearms or the way he is in a fight and staying cool and calm and, and negotiating later and like all the, the different <laughs> things that he does that we don't know his story. We don't know his background. It's hinted at and played with, but it becomes pretty obvious that he's pretty competent on a lot of these levels. And, and like you said, that, you know, maybe that, this this was one of those instances where the the training that if he was special forces and apparently for a long time there's no doubt that a lot of this is just ingrained into who he is and it's maybe more of a reaction at first than a decision oh yeah i mean it's mostly muscle memory for for a lot of that i'm sure uh, especially you know the weapons proficiency and, and how to get out of a, a tight situation and things like that so um, then i think we transition then when when things calm down, they escape the cops and he, you know, you know, gets the Cornelius or whatever the, uh, the, was he a monk or Yeah, priest? the, the priest, uh, priest father yeah. Vito Cornelius, uh, <laughs> played by Ian Holm. Uh, filthy hobbit. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so, but I think that transition of when, you know, she's pretty much done and they're safe in quotation marks and he takes her there and it's just like okay time to drop her off like that that's when it kind of shifts to being more in his control and less just a reaction um and so his decision not that all the other things that go on aren't fueled by his experiences and you know his everything is taken away from his past but i think he finally has a moment and he is, you know, completely taken with this girl. And, you know, that makes that transition to, okay, I'm basically going to do whatever it takes to make sure she's taken care of, even though she was the one who's supposed to be, you know, taking care of him, kind of that, that cyclical thing. Yeah, and you get that kind of sort of role reversal dichotomy kind of thing. Um, it, it, sort of a, a few times throughout this movie, like they, they sort of trade back and forth as to who's, who's protecting who or who's uh, who's kind of covering who and, and what have you. It's yeah. Um, I like, I like that. It's that, that mixture that not, they're not just turning things on its head and saying, okay, now the woman character is going to be strong and it's going to save the guy, but it's more of a, we're both kind of have our strengths. We both have our abilities and we're both going to have times when we're weak and we need help and we have to be taken care of. Like 
I think it's kind of cool to to like not worry about who it is or where it's coming from, but that you know to extrapolate again to a larger scale of things that we you know can all look out for each other and, and protect each other. It doesn't have to be one type of person helping another type of person. It's just you know if you embrace that fifth elementness of yourself, um, then you're able to kind of bring everything together and protect the entire world from evil. So what you're saying is that we're all the fifth element. In a, in a way, in a way, we're uh, all the fifth element. Now, going sort of back to where uh, Corbin is is bringing Lilu to uh, to the, the the priest's apartment. Um, he, I, I forget exactly what uh, what Bruce Willis says in this moment, but he says something along the lines of like talking this gibberish, and um, I don't know the edition of the movie that you watched in the edition that I watched, there's a very brief moment where um, Sean Connery did a voiceover. Oh, really? Because I didn't the, hear it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Corbin says, you know, oh, yeah, she started t- talking all this gibberish and uh, the voiceover is over um, the the priest and he says, it's not gibberish. It's the divine language. Yeah, I didn't hear that at all because to me it sounded like Ian Holm. Um, but what's weird is now that you bring it up, I do remember later um, when they're getting ready to travel uh, to Floston Paradise or whatever the place was, that they were getting these these little pieces of paper with their pictures on it. And out of nowhere, like my audio got all weird because it sounded like Sean Connery was saying, multi-pash. <laughs> and I was like... Why? Why does Lelou sound like Sean Connery? And but so you're saying maybe it was some kind of a dialogue option in the like the drop down or something, and it just clicked on for mine and Will. That's so it, weird. It, it could have been. It could have been like English parentheses Connery. But the one that you did didn't actually sound like Sean Connery, whereas mine sounded a lot. I mean, a lot like Sean Connery. I think. Mine, mine could have been a, a poor imposter. Yeah, obviously. I think it, yours was more like some random guy they got to do an impression of Sean Connery. Like Sean O'Connery. Yeah, bootleg Netflix. Gosh, it's just overwhelming how um, that... Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad we got that straightened out, though, that the actual Sean Connery was the one that said multi-pash. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even now, just hearing it, it almost sounds like he's in the room with me. Um it's kind of hard to argue, I would say. You know who Sean Connery didn't uh, do a voiceover for? Jean Baptiste. Everyone else. Emmanuel Zorg. Uh, uh, Zorg. If if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. I fucking love Gary Oldman. Um, in pretty much every role he's ever been in. It's funny because I I don't do a lot of research again surprise uh for the movies here and but there are sometimes when i know bits of trivia and i do know in general gary Oldman tends to hate almost every movie he's ever in <laughs> and like not every movie but he, he does or whether it's his own performance or the movie itself and and i'm pretty sure i recall that he was fairly vocal about the fact that he did this movie as a favor to luke besson because of because he was in the on the professional and and like and that was kind of a favor in one direction and then he came back and asked hey you know be in this movie for me and he really didn't like the role and he hated the the design of the the character and the the affectations and the accent and all that stuff and i just thought well that's a shame because i thought it was pretty fun (laughs) it it was super fun and and gary if you're a fan of the show i'm sorry that you hated this role so much but i have to tell you i took a lot of joy in in watching you portray this character and gary um again John here, uh, Gary, as you're no doubt listening to this, I don't know if it'll be on Monday that you're listening to this or later in the week. It doesn't really matter. If you need someone to help coach you on the finer points of dialect training, impersonating celebrities, things like that, I'm just saying I've got your back. You can write to us at thememorydistillery at gmail.com, and I can help you out with a killer Sean Connery accent because (laughs) you never once in this movie pulled that off. I'm sorry. Maybe the only flaw of your performance is you never sounded like him. But he did have a great haircut. Yeah, that haircut is something else. Um, he that, that the role that he plays, he's so like he's diabolical and he's fun loving. He, he, he is fun loving, but he also thinks 
you know, five or six steps ahead of just about everyone else throughout the film. Like he's, he's got plans on plans to get these stones. Uh, and it's, I don't know. It, it was just it, a ton of fun to watch. Like, I don't, and correct me if I'm wrong, but just going off of memory, was he ever actually in a scene with Bruce Willis? You know, I don't think I, he's actually ever in the same room as him. Uh, the the closest that they come, I think, is the elevator. The, the elevator uh, during the evacuation <laughs> scene, like they're getting into the elevator as he's getting out of the the other elevator. Yeah, and that's probably the closest. I think that the only two people in the film, or, or the, the only two people sort of on on the good side of things that run into him are uh, the priest and Lilu. Kevin yeah, Lilu is just barely. She sees him for half a second, and then yeah, you know, before she jumps and... jumps up into the into the ceiling. Yeah. It's almost like he has magical powers. Like he's not the fifth element, but he's a different kind of element. A sixth element. Gary Oldman, the sixth element, coming that, to you soon. That should have been the sequel. If he was, hadn't blown up. Wasn't it, though? <laughs> I'm no expert on movies that never existed, and I've certainly never gone on at length at what I think they would be or <laughs> what they were. No, That's not my style. Certainly not a movie about a, a shark fighting a monkey. So. Yeah. That's ridiculous, but Gary Oldman... That's a throwback to our last episode. You should go listen to that. Um, Which Gary didn't need the reminder because he's a big fan. That's Um, right. But again, we'll we'll take that offline, and he and I can just discuss the finer points of the sixth element later. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so, so, I mean, really, we have so much going on in this space opera. We have so much going on with Lilu and her progression of you know their their quest to find these rocks the 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 four stones and all this stuff to save the earth and uh, you know again we're we're not going point for point on the plot but you know as we always like to take a little time to dwell on some of our favorite points we're right in the mix of things before the ship theron explodes where we get the scene with the diva the uh, blue operatic alien singing diva and I still absolutely love that. Like, I am enthralled by it. I think it's a lot of fun. And I just really enjoy everything about the choices they made there. Yeah, I do too. I mean, even down to uh, the the parts that are very obviously synthesized, um, I, I, I still thought that the, the entire sort of choice of music uh, was fantastic. I think that the choreography... Uh, and, and sort of the matching up of beats and, and notes with uh, what Lilu is doing. Yeah. Um, like the, that whole fight scene uh, was uh, so much fun to, to experience. Uh, and you could sort of see that Mila Jovovich is having fun with it too. Like she, she's got a smile on her face and, and all that. Um, and almost immediately after it's done, we cut from one big fight scene to another. Um, and, and there's a pretty distinct line there, uh, but it's, it's there. Like you have Lilu's big fight scene and then essentially Corbin's big fight scene, or if you want Corbin and Ruby's uh, big fight scene. And, and it really accents exactly who they are. You know, what are their strengths? What are their abilities? And you have Lilu who more or less is fighting, you know, at, you know, with hand and feet and is is dancing and, and running and jumping and spinning and kicking. And it's all this kind of beautiful ballet of violence and destruction. And with Corbin, it's very much, it's about the guns. It's about the, you know, looking for weak points. It's about, you know, avoiding destruction and causing his own. And it's all over the top, huge explosions. It's There's nothing subtle about it. No, um, no, not so, at all having Ruby Rod as a companion for that fight scene seems 100% appropriate and perfect. Whereas the companion for uh, Lilu is having the diva singing this, you know, amazing song that is, you know, choreographed and in step with all the, the fast and slow parts of her fighting. It's, I thought it was great. Yeah. Uh, the speaking of Corbin's uh, sort of shootout scene, the, the rocket launcher straight out of American gladiators. I thought yeah. it was a great touch. <laughs> I really um, thought that was going to start launching tennis balls at him. 
<laughs> well, and that that one device kind of lends to a, a larger point that I had um, I, I had down here. There's so much to this movie from a, a an effects and a technological standpoint, not not just necessarily the, the technology of the filming, but the technology that they're portraying. Um, they didn't go overboard with like the futurizing air quotes of tech in this film. Uh, people still wore headsets. There were no holograms or any of that stuff. There were digital readouts and like analog buttons and switches and stuff. Um, it was much more utilitarian than pretty. Like we we think of tech today. Uh, like if just about everybody has a smartphone. Um, most people don't have physical buttons on their phones that they press anymore. Like it's just a, a screen. And you didn't really have that in this movie. Uh, it, it was it was much more about getting a, a, a device that gets a job done than like oh let's let's make it so that everything looks automated and there's no need for whatever. And they took such pride in it, which is kind of fun, and I think makes it you know as opposed to other movies where it feels like sometimes like in Jumanji there'd be practical effects they almost like were embarrassed by so they want to just get past it real quick and move on whereas here they were very physical like you had the multi-pass card that they would you know hold in their hand and it would become part of you know the plot you have the, the little red button on that gun that is a part of you know that drives the story you have the detonator the two different bombs you know that are very different design very you know but they're very physical tactile objects that are in that space and that you're very aware of them and and the contrast to what they are so it's like i think that a part of that is is very intentional in terms of the overall design and aesthetic and i think it really lends itself well to where you're not thinking about oh that wasn't practical oh that shouldn't have happened because you just kind of embrace it for what it is and go with it because you know they were building a fantasy and they took enough care to build in some details just just for you yeah but they 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 did it well enough that it didn't feel like an afterthought yeah well, again, uh, to compare, I know I, I, I like to compare movies of this era with effects, say, to Jurassic Park, <clears throat> one of the best movies ever made. And you, wait, uh, you, you've never brought up Jurassic Park on the show before. So. Oh, oh, haven't I? No, I no. one of us not, 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 that I can, not that I can remember, at least. Okay, well, I'm not going to argue that point because it'd be super easy to listen to me talking about the last movie we did <laughs> where I've referenced it. Um, and the effects of Jumanji versus Jurassic Park. But in this moment, I'll say that I do recall at this time, and I don't know if this was an interview or maybe way back I watched when it first came out on DVD, I watched the special features. I can't remember what, but I remember Luke talking about something to do with the effects and about how the effects teams and departments that were available to him because of the delay between like what Americans had versus what he was working with, essentially the bottom line was he felt that it's not fair that he was right on that edge where things changed and became much easier in special effects. And so it just makes me think that a lot more of what went on here, probably there was a lot more effort and a lot more went into it than we even know to make it look good and, and to make it solid in these points, because he really made a point of saying, you know, essentially, this could have been even better and even more to it. And that's, again, when you get like Valerian and the Thousand Planets, like um, I think that's where he embraced the ability to create all of these different worlds, literally um, with this effects, you know, heaviness that looked beautiful. I'm not saying that the movie's on the same level on any, by any means, but I think then he was limited. Um, and yet there's still a tremendous amount of detail and, and fun that's put into it. Yeah, and I think that if he had come in later with this and he had had that access that he he sort of lamented about, part of me feels like you may not have gotten the same sort of love out of it that yeah. it, that that you did because like I, I felt like there was a, a lot of attention paid to to the detail behind. Uh, the the effects and the visuals in this movie. So the uh, creepiest visual in this movie, you may have your opinion. There's something that happens in this movie, and I do not know why, but I was just like, what is happening? It's the scene when when our, our buddy, 
the villain who I'm white, not Zorg. Yeah, Zorg. When he gets the phone call from the darkness. And, yes. And he starts to tremble, and the blood starts coming. I'm assuming it's blood. starts to come down his forehead. But it's like, where did that come from? So here's the thing. It, it, it's the second time that it happens in the movie. And the, the first time is uh, right after we see the that sort of planet um, that you, know, you have the, the, the three Earth military ships. Yeah. And the, the planet it sort of pops into existence. Um, it happens to the one general and then later it happens to Zord. The thing is, is I don't think that it's blood because uh, like uh-huh. almost right after or, or even during that phone call, he like wipes his face and it's brown. It's not right. Red. It's so it's just it, enough to like, be disturbing. <laughs> it looks like chocolate sauce. Like and it I didn't looks know like that they, was a... they squeezed out like a, a bottle of Hershey's chocolate syrup onto his forehead and had it drip down. Well, now I have all sorts of ideas for fan fiction I didn't have before. Um, <laughs> but I think that um, that's really interesting given, you know, the direction we're taking of being a little higher plane, you know, talking about the what things mean in this. Because, yeah, like, it, I want to think it wasn't a mistake. You know, it wasn't just some... Because there was no lacerations, there was no lasting damage. He didn't even look to be in pain afterwards at any level. So it's like, was that just the manifestation of this thing reaching across, you know, dimensions to touch him with the presence that would make him just kind of go cold with terror? Like, is some sort of ectoplasmic ether extraction, you know, on the negative side of things that, you know, just is there because of the presence is too much something like that. Like, I like, I like that explanation a lot more than, you know, it was just some kind of lazy blood effect. Yeah. I, I don't think it's a lazy blood effect. I think it's probably more in the vein of what you, of what you're suggesting. Well, uh, some, some sort of metaphysical thing. Huzzah to them. Cause that's much better. <laughs> yes. Um, we, we very briefly talked about Ruby rod. I, I this is probably like my second favorite Chris Tucker role after like Smokey. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he's just this, this larger than life caricature of what a, a, a radio personality would be in the future. And he's, he's everything he does, everything that he says is just amazing throughout the entire, his entire contribution to the film and uh i keep saying how i don't know anything but apparently i know some things you know who this role was offered to first right i do not i bet you can guess who do you think this role would have been offered to all the human beings in existence did he remind you of anyone i I don't richard simmons (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Richards. No, uh, it was offered to Prince. Oh, yeah. Oh, see, and I made that connection. Like he, he had very Prince-like qualities, and especially in his sort of styling. But I never really like. I never saw him taking that role. Yeah. Uh, wow. But yeah. I, <laughs> I, I'm glad he didn't take it. Yeah, I don't think like just from my experience through, you know, Purple Rain and New Girl and other acting bits that I've seen with Prince, I don't think that, I mean, he definitely would have made it his own in a different way, I'm sure. It wouldn't have been as bombastic and over the top, and we would have missed out on Chris Tucker's role, which, I mean, I never thought I'd say, yeah, I prefer Chris Tucker over Prince, like, in any conversation. But (laughs) if I had to pick for Ruby Rod, like, I I really, you know, love him, hate him. You're you're not going to be indifferent. You know, you're going to have feelings and opinions about what he did. And I think um, just, you know, right off the bat, like he has full 100 percent confidence in the role that he's playing. And it's just there's no hesitancy. There's no cheesiness. It's just he is what he is. He's a force of nature. And and that pays off later when he his other reactions to all the violence and fighting and things like you instantly buy into his overtop personality. So when he has these other reactions later and he has his followers who are all freaking out, you know, over what's happened to him and all this <laughs> happening, you're like, Ruby! Yeah. yeah, 
this happened. This is real. These these are characters that exist, and I buy it. You know what got on my nerves? What? <laughs> Thank you for asking. Um, maybe the one thing that I think was absolutely throw out a bowl uh, in the stupid, not stupid movie, but the stupid element that kept coming up again was his mom. Oh, yeah. She that, they, they could have definitely done without. That stupid, overused, you know, concerned Jewish-sounding mother who, you know, that that whatever you want to call it, like the fact that we never even see her, the fact that she is just this stereotype and this overblown, everything about her is horrible and negative. Oh, yeah, it's just acrimonious. And... Yeah, it's like... It was not funny to me. It wasn't funny for a second. No, not even I, when she's berating Tiny Lister. Like, yeah, and he holds the phone away like he's afraid of her, and it's just like, oh, what is this? It's like I hate all of this. Please don't have it be in this version that I'm watching. And yet, that I didn't watch the non-mother version of the yeah, film. Yeah, I didn't have the non-mother version either. I watched the limited Sean Connery voiceover version. <laughs> I watched. I watched the other limited Sean Connery. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sean O'Connery. The Sean O'Connery limited edition version of the uh, element. So uh, let's go out on a question. I just have one. Uh, what's your top three Bruce Willis movies? Why do you keep coming up with these lists? Why do we have to, in a world of French cinema where things are bigger than lists, why do you have to bring it back to just numerating upon things? making? Do us- you want to do just one? No, I don't want to do it at all. No, um, let's see. So, <laughs> top three Bruce Willis movies. Um, I think that you should go first because if I only say Die Hard, that's going to make it sound like I don't watch any or like any of his other movies. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, is Die Hard like the only other Bruce Willis movie that you know? Unfortunately, I know many Bruce Willis movies, and many of them were not <laughs> wonderful. Um, so I, right off the top of my head, I can think of The Sixth Sense just, you know, the first time I saw it. I think of, you know, at least 35 different Die Hard movies, of which two or so are pretty darn good. And I also, what else do I enjoy with Bruce Willis? What if I, I, I mean, Blind Date was kind of funny. Maybe, maybe if I watch now, I'd say it's the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. Um, <laughs> Mercury Rising, everyone loved. Oh, wait, no one really did. No. I don't have I, IMDb I, pulled up in front of me, so I don't know. There's got to be something that I'm... It, you and I are probably two, the, the two people who've seen Mercury Rising, so... Uh, right, I, I'll, I'll go first, I guess. You do it. Or I'll go halfway through yours or, or whatever. Maybe so, you'll, maybe you'll say you'll say some movie, and I could pretend I totally remember that movie, and that it wasn't just a. So mine, thing. mine might not be that. Like, a, a, a lot of you might not have seen some of these. So, um, the Last Boy Scout, okay, um, is is a lot of fun to watch for me, um. The Jackal, uh, which is, I'm hearing nothing from John, so he hasn't That's seen two. it. No, I've seen it. Uh, oh, you have? Okay. Uh, and I was then... spacing out because I cheated and I pulled up the IMDb, and now all of a sudden I'm like, oh, wow, actually, yeah, I like some of these. <laughs> um, God, a third movie. I'm, I'm leaving out the Die Hard movies because the... Because I am. Uh, okay, yeah. La- Last Man Standing, I think uh, I'll I'll say is my my third. He wasn't even in that movie. What are you talking about? I thought you were talking about The Last Boy Scout. He was in both The Last Boy Scout and Last Man Standing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. I was just I was still stalling, so I'm gonna throw out Die Hard of any flavor, just because I feel like that's cheating. Yes. Um, I am going to say Unbreakable. Uh, because I really did enjoy that film, and he was just so mundane and subtle and great as a, you know, the the superhero role that the reluctant, like I don't know what I am. I, I just that was great. I loved it. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna say the I'm throwing out the sixth sense because I already said it out loud, so I don't have to say it again. Um, 
but I'm also going to say Bandits, which I loved. Have you seen Bandits? I have. Okay. And then I'm going to say, and this again, because I love controversy, I believe is how it's pronounced. Um, Hudson Hawk. I haven't seen Hudson Hawk. (laughs) It's horrible, but I love it so much. (laughs) I really, this is another one of those ones that we might have to make an exception in and do a show on Hudson Hawk and have it be the first time you've ever seen it and my time revisiting it because I haven't seen it forever. I mean, you I'm sure you remember talking about it and how it was panned and everyone said it was the worst movie ever or things like that. I don't know yeah, if you recall I mean, that. I, I don't remember hearing good things about it, but I I tend to have my own kind of uh, opinion about movies that don't necessarily go in line with the Rotten Tomato scores or anything like that. So, yeah. So I have no official list for Bruce Willis. I don't think he deserves a list in this episode because it doesn't fit the my attitude of general openness and and profundity. Um, but yeah, those movies were all good, and I think we've got to do something with Hudson Hawk coming up because I really think you're gonna find a perverse amount of pleasure in the movie of what <laughs> it is. I now the more I think about it, the more I think you're gonna love it, and I'm gonna go back and watch it and probably hate it. Well, good thing is is that we're early enough in the the format of this show that we can kind of do whatever we want. Whatever so we want. I'm, I'm I'm down to watch it. You hear that, sponsors? We're not going to do what you want this week. We're going to change our mind. Yeah, we're going to do whatever we want. So take that, sponsor, insert sponsor here. Take that, aluminum foil maker, (laughs) Reynolds wrap. All right. Well, that's our show, everyone. Please be sure to subscribe to us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. doesn't matter. Just make sure you listen, subscribe, leave a review. It helps us out a ton. Uh, We're going to be releasing new episodes every Monday, so stay tuned each week as we distill another favorite from our past. And be sure to check out Reynolds Wrap Aluminum Foil when you really need (laughs) to wrap up your leftovers and keep that flavor sealed in. Oh, we're not actually getting paid for that. (laughs) Hey, you don't know how time works. We might in the future. Um, But seriously, folks, the music from our podcast coming from the song Destroying the Evidence by Semaphore is just a taste of what they've done. Go out there, explore them, look them up, give them a little love and and see if you like more of their music. Uh, As always, please feel free to email us at thememorydistillery at gmail.com. Anytime you have questions, comments, notes, requests, things you'd like us to do in the future, uh, we're pretty open to such things. Uh, Thanks again for listening today. I'm John Deck. And I'm Anthony Veneri, and this has been The Memory Distillery.